It's Friday, April 5th, 2019, and you're listening to episode 511 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 55 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Wayne. And my name's Chet. All right, so once again, maybe a little bit of background noise because in order to placate my lovely dog so he's not barking or whining through the episode, I gave him a raw hide. So mm-hmm. what else? Everybody loves dogs, right? So yes. <laughs> yeah, everybody but Chad loves dogs. The rest of you guys, you can just swoon and ooh and ah and ovulate at the sound of this dog chewing. So, so Wayne, if you want to make a lot of money or if anyone at home wants to make a lot of money, Going to give you a stock tip right now. Right, oh. this might be some All illegal right. insider trading because <laughs> I know about some things that are about to change in the market. I strongly suggest investing in either Dramamine or Bonine motion sickness <laughs> drugs. All right, you put down a lot of money for them because I'm going to soon be buying those things like I can make meth out of them. <laughs> the reason being, I don't know if you saw this, but I think it was just today. Today, as of the recording, not release. They announced that they are making for the PlayStation 4 an Iron Man virtual reality game. Hmm. That I can easily see where you're going with this. Yes. And I was I was just thinking about this because I'm playing through the Spider-Man PlayStation 4 game, which I could spoil because that's about a year old. So that's what's then our Fear of the Boot spoiler limit. But I haven't started it but yet. So yes, because no. one of my sub rules to that one year limit is if I know that someone specifically is about to start that intellectual property, then I won't spoil it for them. And Wayne, I know you intend to play the game, so I won't comment on it, except to say that it occurred to me several times swinging around New York that, (gasps) spoiler, it's in New York, and you swing on webs. What? That that game would be fun in VR, but you would have to dose up on, like, elephant doses (laughs) of motion sickness pills before you played it. And you probably fall asleep within about an hour of starting because of all of that. So not too long ago, took my team out for a team lunch. We went to a place nearby called Dave and Buster's. Yeah. It's one of those places for anyone that doesn't have one in their area where it's a video game arcade and restaurant. And yeah. not really for kids. I right. mean, there's no, it's not like a nudie bar. It's just, you know, it's just, yeah, it's not it, like, it's not a Chuck E. Cheese. They have right. like video games, trivia games, Dart boards, pool right. tables, alcoholic beverages. Lots of beer. It's kind of like a showbiz or Chuck E. Cheese for I adults. I just said it wasn't yeah. like Chuck E. Cheese. Well, it is like Chuck E. Oh, it is more yeah. all kinds of like All Chuck around e. the bar. Right. Just only with good food and good games and no yeah. rides and no children and lots of booze. So where I was going with this was uh, one of the games I played, they have these simulator pods that mm-hmm. are basically they're kind of like eggs where you open the door you get in the screen curves all around you yeah and the two of them they had one of them was a fighter pilot one okay the other was a star wars one okay so i'm flying a x-wing on the uh on the trench run okay and the screen is all around you and you're like as you're kind of uh flying around you're getting that motion feeling and it's blowing air at you and it's this really interesting experience that uh, did you hurl no but I was just thinking that I can kind of see that being what this virtual reality thing is going to be like as you get into more of these games, because it was all around. It's a completely curved screen. Yeah. All right. So I've played at any length only two games in VR, 
And I've got a couple more sitting around that I, I want to play. I just haven't yet. But the only two games I've played with any significant amount of time in VR, one was Resident Evil 7, which was an absolutely outstanding game. The other is this racing game that I'm not big into. It's like a Forza game or something like that. Really not my jam. I was just playing it for the kick of playing it in VR. Otherwise, 100% not my sort of game. But it came free with the VR headset, so I'm like, why not? And with both of them, I got pretty severely motion sick. And so I can only imagine being Iron Man and flying (laughs) around. Because in Resident Evil, you're walking. In Forza, you are driving. These are pretty two-dimensional tasks. Maybe in Iron Man, you're bowling. Okay, you know, it might be an Iron Man fishing simulator. Or maybe it's just him on the plane, and all you do is get drunk and watch chicks do pole dances, which, by the way, was (laughs) one of the redacted scenes on the DVD from Iron Man 1, was he did have a bunch of women pole dancing on his private jet. You know, I've never gotten motion sick from VR games. I haven't played as long as you have on some of these where it's uh, a full game. It's more going places where they have VR set up. But where I got motion sick once was... uh, Batman Begins okay. at the Omnimax at the Science Center. Oh, I could see that. So it's the entire roof, the ceiling of the building you're in, a curved building. It's yeah. all around you. And you're on seats that are raised up with like a drop down below you. Yeah. And I actually had to close my eyes because I got motion sick. So I don't it. know the math on it. And there are people out there that can probably explain this a lot better than I can. But when you're not talking about three-dimensional views, because in three-dimensional views... There's something else at work, which is your brain and your inner ear disagree because one of them says you're moving. One of them says you're not. And there's I'm simplifying it, but there's a breakdown sort of in the way the brain communicates. But when you talk about a two dimensional view and you're not moving, nor is anything implying you're moving. It's my understanding that what screws with you is a field of view thing that normally your eyes see X degrees of things and what happens is when you get a really large screen or really small screen or whatever if the image doesn't fit the arc of view it should then that starts to make you feel sick because your brain can't reconcile what it's seeing and 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 in the case of like the omnimax or this game i'm talking about the screen actually goes around to the side of you you can't see the entire screen yeah it feels like you are well and it's a field of view that was filmed for and meant for a narrower screen so it's stretched out to something it shouldn't be at to begin with and so you're getting that irreconcilability in the way that the brain handles that and And the worst part of it was the ad before the movie was the johnny Depp willy wonka (laughs) so you see him on a giant screen in front of you and that's that was a creepy willy wonka i yeah it kind of was that's why a lot of video games come with fov or field of view settings is because if you find you're getting motion sick, you can oftentimes look online for like the recommended settings for that and move it either up or down to change the degrees of, of the arc of your view to theoretically alleviate that motion sickness. I'm sure it's not, you know, 100% effective for 100% of people, but it supposedly helps. I, I don't know. I've never messed with it, but I don't think I've ever been motion sick in my life. You know, I don't get motion sick often. And I say that as somebody who spends a fair amount of time out on the ocean, I don't get 
motion sick or seasick mm-hmm. all that often. Yeah, I was shocked at the Omnimax when it happened to me because I mm-hmm. I don't get motion sick either. And it's just I'm sitting there, it comes on, and it's like I feel like I'm going to throw up. I have to close my yeah. eyes. I, I'm completely, well, I've, I've never had an issue with the Omnimax, but I'm with Wayne insofar as, you know, I can sit out on the open ocean. It doesn't bother me. I can fly on an airplane. It doesn't bother me. I can ride a roller coaster. It doesn't bother me. But playing Resident Evil 7 in VR, oh, yeah. Hmm. I had to dose up about an hour before I played it to really let that stuff get in my system. And then I could play for maybe four, five, six hours, and I'd be kind of feeling it by the time that I was done. And so I can only imagine what this Iron Man game is going to do to me, but to hell if I ain't going to do it. (laughs) I'm going to damn well play that. So uh, have a barf bag nearby. Well, no, I'm just going to be blasted out of my mind on uh motion sickness pills I don't does dramamine blast your mind or i've because i've never taken uh, okay so there are i don't even know what it does ostensibly low drowsiness formulations oh it makes you drowsy yeah yeah it kind of puts you to sleep gotcha. and wears you out and dramamine and bonine both do it like i said it's you can get formulations that are less drowsy but they all have effectively the the same sort of thing that they you know whatever so. i just knew i sold a lot of it when i worked at six flags because <laughs> uh one of the stores i worked in the they had a ride that was called the shazam mm-hmm. where it was one of those where you sit on it and it spins you around the whole point is to try to make you puke yeah and it exited out into the store that i was running uh, so did you have uh, a lot of cleanups on aisle five type stuff never had a cleanup problem Scrubbed but down uh, those sold floors a, with a soap baby sold a lot of drama mean yeah yeah, the only ride at Six Flags that ever made me sick was something called Tom's Twister. And it was like this barrel. That was maybe, I don't know. Those, I mean, to me, motion sickness is different than those kind of like, I've been on the rides where, you know, it's the big wheel that spins really fast and it goes up and it spins real fast and it goes yeah. down. Or the barrels you're talking about where it spins. Spin. That's dizzy. That is just swirling sure. your in, inner ear to where you can't even walk straight. Yeah. I never did Tom Swister, but it always sounded interesting because that's the one, if I remember correctly, where you thought it was you're thrown twister. against the <laughs> you're thrown against the wall and the floor lowers out from yes, under you. That's right, and you're held against the yes, wall unless that. you're really heavy, and then you go down with the floor. <laughs> yeah, it's it's about maybe twelve fifteen feet yeah. in diameter, and yeah, exactly what Wayne described. It spun really fast until centrifugal force pushed you against the walls. And then the floor would drop out and you'd be stuck to the wall. I remember doing it. I don't remember if I got sick or not. I do remember that when I was a kid, the, uh, the, one of those big wheel metal wheel spin things with the little, they put you in the little cells and it has the chain. And that's the only thing that's going to keep you from flying to your death. Yeah. Scrambler. Yeah. I got sick on one of those. Those never bothered me. Those never bothered me for some reason. I think I loaded up on a lot of like cake and snacks and stuff <laughs> okay. and then i wrote it like five times in a I, row i could and, see that yeah, yeah. it was not all right nine-year-olds aren't smart <laughs> so i'm going to tell you guys a story that's going to sound completely unrelated to role-playing games but it's completely related because it ties into a question that chad passed along to me that comes from a listener yeah, can you give me the name of the listener so we can credit the person? Because oh. I like to credit our topic inspirations here. We're not a YouTube channel; we don't just steal everybody's content. Oh, you bastard! Discord. Okay, well, Chad's looking that up. <laughs> I had it set up; yeah. it was right there, and, and then, then because there were new it. messages, it put me down to the bottom. All right, so while Chad's looking that up. I'm, I'm going to kind of explain what the topic is. 
my, my mansplain. Yeah, my mansplain. My little side metaphor or analogy here for how this works. Mr. J. Witt. Mr. Okay. So the question, what is that again? Mr. J. Witt. Mr. J. Witt. Okay. And it's not J. Witt. It is Mr. J. Witt. Mr. J. All right. Thing. Well, okay. So Mr. J. Witt, which sounds like the type of thing where you get correct, like call Mr. Witt, be like, no, you have to say the whole thing. Yeah. It's like a pimp name slip back. Right. You have to call <laughs> a pimp name slip back by the whole thing. But his question was basically, how do I create worlds like Skies of Glass or whatever, any of my games? where I have that what's really going on document. And I have this sense that there is a great deal of order and complexity to the world that is going on out there. But then the players come in as effectively agents of chaos. So they come in and upset the balance of things. They affect things. They change things that I wasn't expecting. And yet I don't let that completely scramble the egg right mm. I, I don't want that completely screw everything up to the point that i don't know what's going on in the world anymore so how do i still tell that story and also not tell the players no yeah not railroad them either so i only know one magic trick i used to know a ton when i was a kid i was really into magic and i had all sorts of really neat tricks but now i know one and i think i actually demoed it with the cards yeah, yeah, with the cards, where I can lay out five cards, and I can run you through a routine where I say, okay, pick up two cards, mm. put them aside, pick up two cards, you know, put them aside, and I see the one that's left, now hand it to me, and I'll have hand you a note before this trick begins, they'll say, like, the five of hearts, and when you hand me that final card, I'll say, okay, open the note, and you'll open it up, and it'll say, oh, it's the five of hearts, and see, well, see, look at the card you gave me, it's the five of hearts. And people get all their mind blown. How did you know I was going to hand you the five of hearts? And I think I actually did a little YouTube video demonstrating how this trick works. You did. And I will link that in the show notes. So if you want to see how this trick works so you can impress your friends. If YouTube hasn't like deleted it and banned it. And- yeah, it probably has. It's probably banned in Europe now. I'm sorry for that <laughs> because the playing cards belong to bicycle or something. But I know this trick works wonders because I just used it successfully on a date with a tall blonde ukrainian woman so i know it's worth something so keep this in your your bag you never know when you're going to need it but the way the trick works is there's a truth and there's a lie now the truth is the magician's in control of the entire situation Mm. the lie is that the person on the on the receiving end of the trick is in control of the situation and so the way the trick works is i lay five cards out in front of you and let's just say for simplicity's sake Let's just say it's the ace, two, three, four, and five of hearts. And I could write down on a piece of paper any one of those cards. So I could write down the three of hearts, and then I hand that to Wayne. And if Wayne picks up two cards, and the first we picks up is the ace and three, I can say, well, Wayne, hand one to me and keep one to yourself. And let's say Wayne keeps the three of hearts. Well, I can say, well, now, Wayne, do you see the card you kept? Now open that note. Now, the truth is... Let's say Wayne had not picked the ace and three. Let's say he picked the two and four. I could say, we'll set those aside. Now pick up two more. Now, do you see the two that you picked up? Let's say he picked up the three in the next round. And I can say, well, now hand one to me and keep one for yourself. And now, because I know he's got those cards, I'm going to make them sound even more significant. I'm going to say, well, one represents your sense of self and your love. The other represents your sense of desire for the future. And I want you to give me the one that's your desire for the future. Well, whichever card Wayne gives to me or keeps, I have made it feel significant. 
And so the truth of the situation is that I am in control the whole time this trick is in progress. I am only making Wayne feel like he is in control. Now, I don't think this is entirely true in a role-playing game. Because in a role-playing game, if the sense of control is 100% imagined, that's a railroad. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, in this magic trick, I am railroading you. I am railroading you until you get to the card I want. And then I will lie to you until you believe it was your choice. And then I will have you open the note I wrote and you will think it was your choice because it's a trick of psychology. Yep. And even then, the meaning of the note could differ. Sure. So I hand you the card, you open the note. See, I knew the card you were going to hand me. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so all I am doing is I, through sleight of hand and tricks of human psychology, I am getting you to attribute meaning to something that in truth had no meaning. And so in a role-playing game, I think to use this metaphor one for one is horrible because that describes railroading. But I think there is still some truth to that because of the fact that in a role-playing game as a game master, there are certain things I am always in control of. I am not in control of player choice. If you guys choose to talk to an NPC versus shoot the NPC versus have the high five of death and get shot by the NPC, (laughs) you picked that. And I might have in my head a list of contingencies that if X, then Y, if A, then B, if C, then D. But you'll never predict the wrecking ball that is a player. But But. yeah, and, and I don't want to. Yeah. Because to me, that is narrative. That's great. I'll give you a novel. But the fact is that I am still in control of a lot of things. For example... The fact that you encountered an NPC at all was my choice. Now, you could go to seek out this NPC, but you've now given me warning you're seeking out this NPC, and I can decide, do you find this person or are they not home? And if they are home, what are the parameters here? If you try to kill them, what happens? If you try to talk to them, what happens? And I can start to stack things. So I can say, well, I'm not going to railroad you to stop you from killing them, But she's going to have three armed guards with her. So this is going to reduce the odds. I'm going to sort of push the situation to try and keep some controls in place. So I think just as it would be a lie or bad storytelling for me to be completely in control as the game master, I think it is purely sleight of hand if the players ever believe they are in complete control of the story. Let's look at real life. All right, let's put philosophy aside for a minute. Let's just all play along and presuppose that we as people have metaphysical free will. Okay, let's, let's just pretend that's the case, whether you agree or not. We all have free will. The fact is that if I have free will, my free will is in competition with the free will and the parameters of other forces that are around me. Wayne has free will. Chad has free will. My neighbors have free will. The police have free will. I can't go rob a bank and presuppose that there will be no existing parameters that my free will will never come into contact with or will somehow be able to supersede. And in the same way, when I am running a game, I think it is perfectly fair and reasonable and logical and indeed good storytelling to create factors of the world that create parameters and create other forces that the player characters are going to interact with. And one of those I already mentioned is I can both decide 
what do you encounter? And two, what are the parameters of those encounters? And I can do that, I believe, within fair terms. If you guys come and bring a nuke, well, okay, things change. But I still think there's some wiggle room I've got in there to try and at least hedge the math a little bit without genuinely cheating you guys. What methods do you use to do that, though? Uh, give me an example situation from a recent game, and I'll walk you through what I actually did. Well, I mean, I could think of when the missile was coming at the arch. I mean, that you had a pretty set story in mind, and it was a the super long shot that my ter- character took, which, if the gamble didn't pay off, him and another NPC are dead. Sure. And, but it did pay off, and it I don't want to say it changed the nature of the game, because it didn't. It changed what you had in mind for a big piece of the game. For anyone who doesn't listen to the AP. Okay, let's start with the story. So the story was St. Louis is led by a series of trade houses or guild houses. Think kind of like the guild houses from Dune. I don't mean like the spacing guild, but I mean like a tradies or or whatever. Except instead of being political entities, they are political entities. But they also have industrial or trade concerns. So mm-hmm. there are specific- you have a farming house, yes. you have an industrial house, you have a... And they're designed that way so that there's always an interdependency as to control their power. You know, the one that has steel, if they stop giving steel to the house that produces food... House that produces food doesn't give them food anymore. Yeah, and they yeah. starve to death. And if the house of steel stops giving them steel, they can't farm as well. So everybody gets screwed. And that's the idea of the system is mutually assured destruction. So there may be hiccups in the the mechanism, but the mechanism always moves forward. And there is one house whose job is basically to oversee or to sort of be law bringers to the other houses. They keep them in line and, and subtle disputes and such. And they represent as close as you can get to a central leadership to this government or this society. And there was a bomb that was brought in that was supposed to detonate. Not by the players. The, but the, by the NPCs. Yeah. This is NPC versus NPC violence. So one NPC faction was trying to kill the leadership of St. Louis. And the leadership of St. Louis, for anyone who doesn't know much about St. Louis, the legs of that Gateway Arch thing, there's actually an underground museum there. And in Skies of Glass, I've had them convert that museum into a governmental bunker. And a bomb got smuggled in there and was going to explode and kill the leadership and collapse that society. And so what happens is that the last minute, Chad, who at the time was playing Lee, his prior character, goes in there and makes this one in a million shot to defuse that bomb and to try and save the leadership. And I warned him before he went in there, I'm like, okay, this is probably going to explode. My game notes were written such that this bomb is going to go off. I did not see a plausible way in which this bomb doesn't go off. From your perspective, the players, me or whoever, was not supposed to disarm the bomb. Right. This is my established canon that has yet to occur. But I'm not a railroad GM, Mm -hmm. so I believe I'll give you a shot at anything. Odds are against you. And every action you did, I had a count on time on a note card. I think I started at three minutes. And you said, well, I'm going to do this. I'm back. Well, it took about 30 seconds, two minutes, 30 seconds. Well, I'm going to do this. Ten seconds. You got two minutes, 20 seconds left. And if he had not diffused it by the end of that countdown timer, he would have died along with everyone that was in that governmental complex. Well, through a lot of quick action and also through a lot of very clever thinking and very, very good roles, he succeeded. He Mm -hmm. disarmed the bomb. 
and thereby saved the leadership that was there and changed the plot as I had it written. All right. So how did I, as a GM, react to this? Well, let you me flip the table over. You slap me in my whore mouth. Uh, no, as a, as a railroad GM, <laughs> I just said, well, the timer was rigged. It had a dead man switch. So when the timer stopped, it blew up anyway. And hope you have a backup character. Yeah. Cause you know, even somebody who's in the room who was not previously a turncoat suddenly became a turncoat mm. and shot you in the back of the head before you could disarm it. And it blew up anyway. And, no, it's terrible GMing. Right. Don't do that, right? Mm-hmm. If the players can't earn something, then just tell them how the story ends. Write a novel. Novels are great. Love yeah. novels. But that's not what a role-playing game is. So, no, I, I had to give. Mm-hmm. I believe that I was constrained by the fairness, the social contract of the mm-hmm. game, to give Chad what he had earned. All right, so how did I Which handle is to this? to curse my character horribly. <laughs> but that's a different story. Yeah. Well, and that, an awesome one. Okay, that, that's a different story. Now, yeah. one is sometimes success does carry consequences. Yes. Oh, absolutely. But I, that, I think, was something that I dealt with. And we can talk about this as an aside real quick. Some of this I dealt with by virtue of the fact that there was a break there. Mm-hmm. That was the end of one game sitting. And then I had two weeks to realign the world and realign my plot based around this new reality. Look, the players don't know the future, right? They don't even know everything about the past or present. And so I had two weeks to readjust the world based on Chad succeeding instead of these people dying. And that is very much worth mentioning. Now, I don't know that there's a huge amount of advice that is really organic to this topic. Yeah, I I think. And I think we've given the advice before, too, of if something earth shattering happens in your game and you are not prepared for it, it is better to and you didn't do this, but it's better to maybe call it an early night to just admit it and say, "Okay, guys, that was awesome. Did not see that coming. I'm not sure what to do next. So. I'm going to need a little bit of yeah. time to think about say, it. Okay. It's okay to say that. It is 100% okay. And on top of that, I'll tell you right now, typically your players feel great. Mm. They feel like they won the game if they broke <laughs> the game master's brain. Well, going back to your card trick, it would be like the lie is the player is in control. The truth is the GM is in control. And if you tell them that, well, suddenly you're telling them, you know what? You figured my trick out. You're in control. I need a little bit of time here. Yeah. Play, and, uh, and people love that. People love that. And they get a kick out of it. You say, look, I wasn't expecting you to do that. I'm not going to take it away from you, but I need some time to realign. Let's go bowling or let's call mm-hmm. it an early night or let's go back out and fire it up or whatever it is <laughs> you guys do. And yeah, we'll cast some time to think about that. Now, it just so happens that that event occurred near the end of a game. Yeah. And so I had to react to it a little bit, but I did not have to react to it a huge amount. All right, so let's talk about the couple things that did occur there that helped me. One is part of the internal consistency of my world is I knew precisely what that faction wanted. When I say that Mm -hmm. faction, I don't mean the faction doing the assassination. I mean the faction that was the government underneath the arch. And so when they survived, all that happens is in my doodle notes of what this group wants, that simply continues on. Instead of being cut off with a bomb blowing up, they just continue on. So what is it these people want? They have survived. They understand that someone has attempted to assassinate them. Logically, it must follow something, right? So if something occurs, then something else must follow. There's a concept in philosophy called counterfactuals. 
And counterfactuals are a, a fascinating thing I could go 100 directions with that would all be wildly off topic. <laughs> but what a counterfactual is, is the reality of the situation is, Wayne and Chad, you guys are here right now tonight recording this podcast. But Wayne, I could probably say to you, can you imagine what tonight would be like if you had instead opted to stay at home and start the PlayStation 4 Spider-Man game? All right. So you might think about things like, well, what's the reason I would give Dan for not showing up? What would that game be like? How would Sarah feel about this or you know, whatever? You can right. picture things about that circumstance. Now, that didn't happen. But what that's called is a counterfactual. All right. So we can imagine these what if kind of scenarios. Role playing is a massive exercise in counterfactuals. Every situation you go into, if I say roll the dice, I know that I have to be prepared for critical success, success, failure, critical failure. All right. Most systems will have those four outcomes. The worst thing that could happen is middle of the road. No one likes mediocrity. No, yeah. I, I hate when the dice rolls in the middle of the road. I want, as a GM, it's easier for me to give an extreme on either side than it is sure. middle of the road. But you, you know, still know what that, I think we yeah. could do it, an episode, not right now, where I would ar- counter-argue of embracing the middle of the road, embracing mediocrity. But we'll, we'll maybe we'll save that, that for another topic. Yeah. But let's go back to something else that happened in that Skies of Glass game, albeit a different sitting, where one of you guys threw a very large pipe bomb okay <laughs> it was barely a success now i understand that critical failure would mean the dude probably dropped at his own feet failure would mean he simply missed his target success is he hit his target critical success is he not only hit the target but hit the two or three bad guys standing next to him all right i understand these are all counterfactual i can imagine these outcomes motivation is no different than the mathematical counterfactuals. So if we look at, okay, I know the people in St. Louis, they want order for their domain. See, and I I want to interject too here of part of this is pre-work for the game master. And what I mean is that you can't have these counterfactuals. You can't make these simulations in your mind if you have flat, boring, nothing characters and flat, boring world and flat, boring situation. You know, the same thing is true for a player, too. If a game master has, like in this case, you have the overseers, they don't blow up. And the question is, what is their motivation? What is the counterfactual? What do they want to do? What would they go on and keep living? You don't have the answers, but you know the questions. You can figure out the answers because of all the pre-work you've done creating them. Now, if you hadn't done the pre-work and they're just, these are, these are the law. That's it. That That's your whole thing. It's like they wear scary skull masks, people are afraid of them, and that's it. That's all you had. Well, they are made to be blown up. They didn't get blown up. What's the next move? To be more law? Or, so, you know... I actually had something like that in the first game of the uh, Hollow Earth campaign. Mm-hmm. I had a character who was the engineer who it was my intention that he dies. Yeah. And I could have just said walks in, drops to the ground, and he's dead from the gunshot. But Chad's character is a doctor and rolls really well to save him. Mm-hmm. So then I have to start going through that in my head of this character that I made strictly for being dead yeah. to show that, you know, death happens. Yeah, the yeah. character death happens that, you know, get him out of the way so he can't fix the drilling machine. Yeah. And this was the first game. Right. First so, game. Yeah. The- I had to think I had to think about it. It's like, okay, well now what is he going to do? 
now that he's still alive, but he's injured. But did you have any depth to that character? Nope, not at that time. (laughs) Yeah, and I think Chad, you're absolutely right that these okay, a train has to be on the railroad. Because it's a train. A train can't right. go down the interstate. can't go anywhere but a railroad. Well, it can go down the interstate for a little bit. Yeah, okay. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't go very well. I've seen that happen before. <laughs> but it can't handle anything but a railroad. And in the same way, if you create your game as a train, then don't be surprised when it has to be stuck on the railroad. And I don't want to pile too many metaphors here. But you don't want to get off track. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a great pun. It was it a great totally pun. It derailed yeah, yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> Took my steam. <laughs> but... There is an important point there about setting yourself up for success that if I want you guys to have room to maneuver, then we have to build the game accordingly. Mm. The characters have to have some complexity. The NPCs have to have some complexity. The plot has to have some complexity so that if the very first five minutes of Lord of the Rings is they somehow figure out some way to launch that ring into the volcano, there's still a story left beyond that. Or what if the hobbits are so poorly written and so boring, they're just like all the other hobbits, and we're it's not a novel, we're playing a role-playing right. game, and these are like nothing characters, and Gandalf comes in, here's the quest, and they're like, no, I think I'm just going to stay home. Yeah. yeah, it's time for lunch. Yeah, what we'll do you do? Farm <laughs> and pack out a bowl, and that's going to be the extent of what we do. Right. And so, yeah. I, what, I, what can the game master do with that? So, as to a game master, I would strongly recommend, if you want to be prepared for these counterfactuals, for these different ways the situation can turn out, then yes, you have to have a world and factions that are written well enough to handle these eventualities. So and using Lord of the Rings as the example, the hobbits don't leave. They don't take the ring. The ring wraiths come to the Shire. That's your consequence. Yeah. yeah. And the you, battle of the Shire at the beginning instead of the end. Precisely. Exactly. And you know what? The setting and the characters are written well enough because... Tolkien put a lot of yeah. thought into his setting. I can easily sit here and think that is what would happen because mm-hmm. we know what each of the factions want. Yeah. yeah. And we know that there are forces of good that did not want them to have the ring who may have come over to the Shire to try and do something about that and so on and so forth. And, you know, there's, there's a couple ways we theorize this would go. But in the same way, I knew enough about what it was St. Louis wanted. I knew that the people running things from underneath the arch They wanted stability in their domain. They would want better security because now they realize that someone's gunning for them and capable of reaching them, which is new information to them. They believe themselves to be untouchable for decades. And so they're going to try and find some way to solidify their holdings, to protect themselves from further threats, and yet not to give up their goals for the world at Mm -hmm. large, which I had already established what those are. And so the way that they dealt with that was by masking somebody else. They they basically right. appointed Chad's characters like, well, you saved us. That's a great excuse to make you one of us. And now you go out to the world. And if you get killed, not our problem. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get killed, well, also, hey, win for us. It's a win-win situation or so they believe. And so they sent you out into the world as forcibly conscripted into yeah. one of their ranks. Basically, they sent me sent my character into a war zone. Right. The front line for the war zone as the most targetable person there. And so I, I think what's important is as a game master, you have to see a long view and a near view. And the near view, it's like walking through a room with nothing to see by except a cigarette lighter. 
You can see right around you really well. Mm -hmm. You see a little bit away from you, kind of hazy, and everything beyond that's blackness. And this is how I would describe the events of the game. You as a game master ought to know what's happening right now. You ought to see some things out in the little near distance that kind of look like hints and shadows that this or that may be coming, that there might be this kind of encounter or this twist in the plot, but you don't know for sure. And you're sort of adapting as you get closer to it and reality materializes in that light. But what you ought to know inside and out is the motivations of what brings everyone to the table, what they're willing to do and not do, what they want and don't want, why they want it and don't want it. See, all that stuff that you're describing is the soft concepts. It's not there is this road here and there is this castle here. That's great and all, but it's the soft concepts that are important because it's those soft concepts that are their motivation. I want this guy dead. The player saved his life. Now he's alive, but I know all of his personality and his motivations, and so we can keep the soft stuff, the story, the, the soft conceptual stuff going. If you set everything in stone, if you make it to where everything in your world is so defined, and so immutable, you've gone too far. You, you're, you no longer have that cigarette lighter in the dark room. Now you have the floodlight, and everything is known all the time, and it can't move for you, and it can't move yeah. for the players. So then you kind of become stasis-locked when things go off the rails. Well, and that's why I think I've always, at least in recent years, been such a big fan of describe in detail the immediate events of a game. I will often script... I mean, sometimes in very high detail, the opening of a game mm. because of the fact that that is something that's more presented than it is something that's evolving over time. You guys are in such and such a place and this happens. You know, these are the first 20 minutes of the game. But beyond that, it's a lot of plug and play possibilities where if I get stuck, if things get boring, if things get bogged down or I think through the what ifs. Well, what if this happens or that happens? What if this group survives and this group dies or vice versa? And I can't predict everything you guys are going to do. But what happens is you guys, you're not true agents of chaos for the simple reason that you have a finite reach. And this is mm -hmm. a, a point I think is very worth emphasizing. The world and the factions and all the stuff is so much bigger than you guys. The player characters have an enormous amount of effect right where they're standing. And then like ripples in a pond, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker the farther it gets away until there's the things they control, then the things they influence, then the things they barely influence, and then the things that hardly are even aware of their existence. When you guys saved the leadership of St. Louis, that had an enormous effect on St. Louis. That had no effect on the Southern Army. Right. Because they're nowhere near you. They had no idea this was even going on. This has no effect on the people in the space station. Because they had nothing to do with that. And so there's this whole big world out there of all these people with all their plans that are simply unaffected by that. Yeah, they may have been affected by the event if Chad hadn't stopped it. But even they then, didn't know that was about to happen. Even so. then, not immediately so. I mean, if... Let's say the leadership had gotten blown up. St. Louis goes into a power vacuum. Well, now what happens in that power vacuum? Because there's different factions, different motivations. Does a new faction fill the vacuum? Do they take to pure civil war? Do they collapse? Okay, let's say they collapse. 
well, certainly that benefits the Southern Army slash National Army because of the fact that now their primary counterweight of St. Louis is gone. Their big, their main foil on the world stage is gone, but their motivations still remain basically unchanged. You know, it's only the course of their progress is changing. Right. Things have gotten easier for them, but what they want has not been affected by what you guys have done. Only the simplicity of what occurs. Let's say going back to world war two, famous battle of midway where the U S fleet won a very, very pivotal victory against the Japanese fleet. Let's say we had lost that is what America wants or what Japan wants any different. No, I mean, history changes. Maybe America still wins the Pacific just through its industrial might. It loses it midway, but it ends up winning elsewhere. Maybe the Japanese do lock America in strategically. I I don't know. I mean, I'm just Mm -hmm. guessing here. But the point is that the basic nature of what's going on doesn't change. And it sure as heck does not change what happens when the Russian forces come flooding into Germany in 1944. So, you know, obviously there's a whole lot of things that might be vaguely impacted by this, but are not going to be radically rewritten. And that's something I think that's important to keep in mind as game masters. Don't be intimidated by your players because they are only a locus of chaos where they're standing. Right. They're not this tornado that somehow tears apart your entire world. And if it does, I would say, wait a minute, back up and maybe design a bigger world. Yeah, expand your framework a little bit. And I want to qualify that. And I guess this is probably a new point, albeit a related one, of when you are defining motivations in general course of things, this is not the same as saying you need 300 pages of mm-hmm. setting. I don't have 300 pages of setting for the current campaign of Skies of Glass. Right. I know generally who the factions are, generally what they're up to, generally what they want. I could write this on a couple sheets of paper tops and truth be told, it probably changes a bit from game to game based on what you guys do. It is not 300 pages of hyper defined reference that is so wooden that they cannot react to what you guys are doing, nor is it so complex that I can't keep track of it. I just have enough to find that I know vaguely the direction they're moving in. And that gives me the wiggle room to react to what you guys do. So if the leadership of St. Louis dies, I know the National Army does one thing. If they live, I know they do another thing. But I don't have some Schlieffen plan, <laughs> World War One joke there for you. I don't have some detailed if-then of each possible contingency and outcome mm-hmm. here of everything you guys could do and what that's going to result in and the name of every general they've got and the name of every motivation every general has. And eh, you know what? For the players, it's no different than the game master. They see you according to the cigarette lighter. Yeah. The players don't know what they don't know. It's an easy-to-use GMing tool. I'll take that a, uh, and extend it. The players don't know what you don't know. Players yeah. always assume that you know more about mm-hmm. what's going on than you actually do. Yeah. Players will throw a question at you like, what's your name? And they're going to assume you know that. Yeah. yeah, which is whatever random number. Got a random name generator linked on my phone. That's how I give you guys names now. Players will remember some random little thing you said three games ago that has stuck in their head that is incredibly important to them. And you don't even remember it. But they don't know that yeah. you don't know that that's mm-hmm. 
what that is. And you don't have to admit you don't know, at least during the course of the game. Getting back to something we said a few episodes ago is a lot of these are it's a marketplace of ideas. So if something sticks for the players, then you got to build that up. Things that don't, you need to retool and move on. But I think it all comes back to applying techniques to a well thought out framework of a world. Again, not 300 pages of this person lives in this cottage on this street and does these things at this time every day without fail because when the players are the agent of chaos and they mess that up, that screws up your entire flow. It screws up everything. But you need to know the person who is in the cottage and kind of like why they're there and their motivations and stuff. You know, I'm going to give kind of an unusual recommendation here. If you're still struggling to wrap your head around this, I'm going to recommend something that is based on Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Now, for anyone who's not familiar with Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, it's a sort of pyramid-shaped drawing. And I'll link this in the show notes if you want to see it. And it's an attempt to model human psychology. And it basically says that the human mind tries to work through a series of needs, and a lower need always usurps a higher need, okay? So let's say I put in front of Wayne, what's your favorite type of pie? Pecan. Okay, so let's say I put a pecan pie in front of Wayne. Now, Wayne, if we presuppose that this fits within your diet and everything else, are you going to eat this pecan pie? I know. Let's just just play make-believe, right? Yes. Okay. All right. Now, (laughs) if I put a gun to your head and say, if you take that piece of pie, I'm going to kill you. Now what? I don't eat the pie. Right. Precisely. All right. So what you've done is in Maslow's... And I start rethinking my friends. You you should damn well. (laughs) But in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the lowest need, the most basic need, and so therefore the most critical one to everyone... People will chase their security first, their general because sense of safety. People don't like to die, yes. and they don't like to be hurt. Now, people and, might do dangerous things, but sure. in my experience, admittedly argument from anecdote, when you talk to these people, it's because they don't think the dangerous thing is in truth all that dangerous. Yeah. On an instinctual level, sure, people don't want to die. Right. And so right. people chase their need for security first. That's the thing about instinct. You can override that yes. for and, a purpose. Sure. And as you work your way up. Good purposes and bad. Other needs come into play. And yes, there are exceptions to this. Like for, pie. Like pie or, or <laughs> altruism, for right. example. People might put their safety on the line for some sense of altruism. There are exceptions to this. Mm-hmm. All right. What I would recommend is I don't think this works one for one with a faction or an organization or a social movement. Because the Maslow's hierarchy of needs has things that don't apply to a social movement. For example, sex drive is one of right. them. All right. The, well, it depends on the movement. But. Well, okay, fair enough. But this generally does not apply to things like that. But what I would recommend is if you as a game master are struggling with this, take your factions or within your factions, figure out who's running the factions. So you have the evil cult over here who wants one thing. Pecan pie. Pecan pie. Mm -hmm. But they're being run by the evil wizard, Pecan, who (laughs) wants something that... He's nuts. (laughs) He's kind of using this group to his own ends, all right? So the propaganda he's selling does not 100% align with what he actually wants. Right, he's played a shell game. Mm -hmm. So squirrely there, Wayne. <laughs> so you could say that, uh, like, take Saruman as an example. Saruman from Lord of the Rings, he had a list of things that he was after. 
that sometimes aligned with what he was selling to the Orsudurakai and sometimes did mm-hmm. not. All right. Take anyone that matters, factions, major players, whoever the movers and shakers are of your universe. This should be a list of maybe half a dozen, dozen people. And write a Maslow's hierarchy of needs of just three things. What is it they want the most? Assuming that's in order, what is it they want the second most? Assuming that's in order, what is it they want the third most? Let me take Skies of Glass as an example. All right. Within St. Louis, the thing they want first and foremost is the secure operation of the city of St. Louis. All right. They don't want the organization to die. Well, they don't want themselves to die. Right. But the the second thing they want is because of the fact that the city itself is dependent upon its greater area, which is a two or three hundred mile radius Mm -hmm. to the northwest and south. It depends upon that for food and timber and ore. And so their second highest concern is the ongoing stability and function of those areas. Okay. Then really suck at that. And then maybe a third concern while you guys are finding them in the middle of the struggle with that. And then the third concern might be pushing back against external threats Mm -hmm. like the Carver clan, which is attacking their West or whatever they're the now the national army to their south okay and i could do this for any faction in the game the national army to the south their number one concern is going to be the security of their own territory Mm. their number two concern is going to be the expansion of their ideology into new territories all right so unlike st louis they are less concerned with broad territory in the political sense than they are with broad territory in terms of ideological agreement Okay, so they're a little bit more open to dealing with dissent or dealing with infighting so long as everybody's kind of singing from the same song sheet in terms of ideology. And then their third concern is going to be a sense of equity and a sense of decency to any of the areas that they have influence over. And you can write out these stacking levels of needs do three of them four of them five of them whatever you need to do and if you have a faction that gets hit on one of these where suddenly they have lost one tier of that hierarchy what are they falling back to Mm. they can't get the pecan pie because there's a threat (laughs) to their security therefore let's go down the pyramid oh concerns of security that is their number one concern What is this group going to do to assure their security? And if you know the person or you know the faction well enough in your head, you've got a good view of their psychology, their sociology, how it is they function. It shouldn't be too hard to figure out. Let me give you a a real life example. I want to add on to that, too, that if you're a game master and you're stuck for a story, like you have some writer's block and you really have a hard time. Coming, you have you have players who want to play, and you have a game you want to run, but you're really having trouble, you know, writing out and figuring out the story. You can make characters, you can make factions that fit within this broad framework of maybe that you have an idea for. The story comes in from the tension of pushing those motivations and needs. So you make your factions, you make your characters that populate the factions, and then you do those motivations. You do those three motivations, and then. You make things hard on them. You pick one faction, pick one of their motivations, and then press it. Make them struggle with it. How are they struggling with it? Why are they struggling with it? What's going on here? 
you start answering those questions, that's your story. I think also another way you could expound upon that is to look at what those motivations specifically mean to each of the groups. Mm -hmm. And if you want, I guess you could also write like a one-liner of what they might do if that's threatened. Of course, the details of how it's threatened might change that. But let's take security as an example. Let's say somebody walks into a police station and whips out a gun. All right. To the police, security means something very, very immediate. There's a person with a gun. This person's probably going to end up tased or killed or, or whatever. Something bad's going to happen here. Okay. It means one very particular thing. Now, let's say somebody walks in and pulls a gun on a convent. Well, to them, security might really be less about temporal security and more about eternal security. And so they might be thinking towards goals of spirituality and religion. And to them, this is the security they're falling back on, a security that's divine in nature. And so rather than Sister Mary Superior or whatever popping one off, <laughs> she might instead try to talk this person down or try to understand what their mm -hmm. issue is or hit them with a ruler. I don't know, <laughs> whatever the protocol is for this. But because security means something different to her, because she's thinking in less of a temporal sense and more of an eternal sense. And you could do the same thing with political factions or individual factions, that the sort of security that would threaten St. Louis is very, very literal. It's the trains have to run on time and we have territory and everyone has a place to be and everything has a place to be and everything has a purpose and we need things in a certain order. But to the rising nation in the South in, in Skies of Glass, that's about an ideology. Any particular city could struggle or fall, but it doesn't matter so long as the ideology moves forward. And if they can argue internally that the struggle of that city is part of the story of the Republic, they're okay with that. Mm -hmm. And so security means something different to them. But I think really, I've never put it in that model, but that's sort of how I run my games is I understand the motivations of these individuals and these factions in these layers of sort of fallback positions of here's the gold medal, here's the silver medal, here's the bronze medal, here's just my ass limped across the finish line with the help of my mom and dad. <laughs> and we're just going to fall back down those until the faction either succeeds or is made irrelevant. I think that's where we're going to wrap this one up. Check the show notes. Nothing super pressing, but I'm linked to a few random things like Maslow's hierarchy <laughs> of needs and how my card trick works. And uh, beyond that, you guys have a great week and great games. And if you are interested in the Skies of Glass game or Chris's Deadlands Young and Holt game, you can find those at ap.feartheboot.com. No www, just ap.feartheboot.com. And there's some time. That's where all, yeah, clear some time. They're long shows, but that's where our actual plays are. And uh, we hope you guys have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time. Yeah. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2019. Listeners are free to use this episode in any non-commercial endeavor so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the RPG Academy Network of Shows. You can find other great shows in this network at therpgacademy.com slash network.